Hi, this is Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, and I've got a podcast. We call it Being American. In each episode, we talk about the major challenges that people and families and communities all over the country are facing that need real solutions and how a better understanding of our shared values and objectives can help us bridge the kinds of differences that keep us from those solutions. I interview political figures, elected officials, grassroots organizers, regular citizens, folks in and out of politics and civic life who are in search, like me, of common wisdom in these uncommon times. Join us and help bridge the divide. It's the Being American podcast, which you can subscribe to or download wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For All, a podcast by ACLU of Mississippi, focused on the people and projects that promote civil liberties and rights in our state. We're offering lessons and stories on how to advocate for all Mississippians. And I'm Candace Coleman, the Communications Director at ACLU of Mississippi. We're going to start this episode off with three letters, C-R-T. Those three letters have become the fuse of so many political conversations in 2021, and very unrightfully so. CRT, or critical race theory, has become a coverall term that many politicians are using to villainize curriculum, books, and conversations that simply mention systemic racism and the history of our country. The ability for educators to teach the truth about race in America should not be up for debate. Yet, here we are. Students deserve to be taught the truth about our past, present, and future so they can reasonably develop their own opinions and help improve the quality of life for all Mississippians in their own way. So I'll have some actions at the end of the episode, but first I want you to hear from Chauncey Spears. So much discourse about critical race theory happening right now is being done by people who frankly have no clue what they're talking about, but Chauncey does. He is currently the education policy analyst for the Mississippi Center for Justice. But Chauncey has spent much of his career developing social studies curriculum in Mississippi, leading the gifted and talented program at the State Department of Education, playing a big role in procuring textbooks for Mississippi schools, and also working on educational equity policy. So let's jump right into it with Chauncey. As an educator at heart, I can say that, you know, the best teaching doesn't indoctrinate, but it enlightens. Mm. You know, it, it, it provides opportunity for young people to explore history in ways, explore society in ways, to explore art in ways that they may have never thought about before. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tell them that how to feel about the art or how to feel about the history or how to feel about what society is doing. It just says that here is what's happening and look at how this is impacting different people in different areas. And you can feel however you want to feel about that. As we've grown as adults and we go on to, to college and universities, we, you know, I, I find it fascinating when people say that um, they find that college was, was, a, was a left wing radical indoctrination zone or something. I, I never experienced that. You know, you know, I, you know and I've, I've spent a lot of time in, in schools, probably too much time. Uh, but one thing that I found was that no, no professor ever told me I had to feel a certain way about 
capitalism or feel a certain way about Marxism or feel a certain way about free market uh, economies or anything like that. They, right. All they told me was that this, this is one way to distribute resources economically. Here's another way to distribute resources politically. Here's another way to distribute resources culturally. Here's how, you know, here's how this in, impacts this. This is how this impacts this. And mm-hmm. you just read, you explore, you, you, com- you, have, you com- have conversations with other students, other professors, uh, and, and you as a, a, an autonomous intellectual and, and moral being, you arrive at your own conclusions. So, you know, to say that teaching a, a ninth grader about Zora Neale Hurston is going to create some sort of guilt complex or disempower them, you know, if they're depending on where they are in the social strata. To me, you know, it's not really a, a complete understanding of what the academic enterprise really entails. And I think that it, it also shows that we have work to do as yeah. educators. And it's not actually critical race theory, right? Like right. that's a whole nother part piece of this of this whole conversation that has been uh, blown up and just loud and wrong is the fact that they're teaching critical race theory in elementary schools and high school. Right. They're not. There's not. That's not even being taught. In that's not what's happening. Yeah, when I first encountered it, it was graduate school with that. So no, in, in that sense, you're not talking about those authors, those scholars in the third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. Uh, but one thing that's very interesting about the way it's being framed in terms of being taught in elementary school is that this idea that they that they're afraid of racism being taught as systematic or systemic, uh, which is interesting because I often think about well, what is racism if it's not systemic? And, and so, so I think a lot of the the argument that you know, some people have is that well, racism is an individuated, you know, interpersonal prejudice thing where, you know, certain bad actors are doing certain bad things that only affect the people that they directly impact. You know, it has no effect over time, over space, you know, over culture or things of that nature, which simply isn't just true. When, when, for instance, when you think about the laws, the, the, the court cases that we talk about in, in, in a lot of our uh, civics courses and, and government courses, we talk about like the Dred Scott decision in, in 1854, where the United States says that uh, the, the African-Americans have no rights that the government is bound to respect. That is systemic racism. You know, and that just happened. That's just history. That's just what it is. We can document it. We can see the impacts of that because that allowed for things like the fugitive slave law to, to, to perpetuate, that allowed for things like laws that said that, you know, African-Americans couldn't learn to read, couldn't own property, couldn't, couldn't enter, enter into business enterprise at that time. Uh, and when you go to Plessy versus Ferguson and, and, and you say separate but unequal uh, of, of laws and, and, and public facilities are the law of the land, that is racism systematized. That's just what it is. You know, you can't say that, well, there's no such thing as systemic racism because that's just what it is. That's just happens there. Not saying that there is anything such thing as individual prejudice or individual racism. Yeah, it is. But when we start talking about now how we understand our world today, how we see uh, 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 racial inequalities and gender inequalities and, and, and inequalities uh, based on things like gender and sexual orientation, all those other things, we have to understand them systemically, not just individually. You know, and we, we look at things like the disparities in terms of school funding in different locales. You know, it's just not a coincidence that, you know, the, the, the schools that are have, the, have low resources happen to be predominantly African-American in most instances in the state of Mississippi. That just isn't a coincidence or a happenstance of the market. These are purposeful practices, policies, laws, 
institutional machinations that have created these realities. And there's there's nothing that not talking about that is going to do to address those issues. I talk about all the time being an advocate for, for good education and for education equity for all in every zip code in the state. This is absolutely necessary because this is how you get students uh, who are going to not only have the disposition to work towards racial equity, but also to be civically engaged as adults. Our democracy depends on the engagement of its citizens and, and, and the citizens that are informed. And so when you want to inform citizens, you have to engage them with a history program, a civics program, an arts program, a program that's going to not only be relevant and relative to them, but also be truthful and be impactful and be enlightening. And I think that uh, when you have policies that are trying to curb the perspectives that are presented in these areas, it, it not only impacts you know the, the instruction of kids in grade schools and, and our colleges and universities too, but it also impacts the civic engagement level of people as they become adults. And I think that when you have a low civic engagement, that's when our democracy begins to crumble and you begin to see things like January 6th and you begin to see things that show that our democracy is indeed in danger. And so, so like I said, we just have work to do. We have lots of work to do as educators and as advocates to make sure that we are preserving our democracy for our children and our future. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that you've spoken to a lot of teachers, educators on every every level, level elementary, high school, college professors. What has been their biggest concern with this whole discourse on critical race theory? What, what has been their biggest fear? I think it's been academic freedom. Even while we were doing trainings, uh, when I was with the Department of Education, teachers often wanted resources but, you know, a lot of those decisions are made at the local level and a lot of people in communities, you know, have different ideas about, you know, what should be taught, how it should be taught in different classrooms and things. And so a lot of teachers would want to do a lot of great work in terms of creating these empathetic, civilly engaged citizens as adults. But we're, we're weary of the fact that if they did a whole lot about that in those areas in certain communities, that they wouldn't get the support that they needed in order to, to be able to do it effectively. So they would ask about resources. They would ask about, you know, and they, and they would ask about things in anonymity. You know, they, they didn't want to tell me who they were. You know, they didn't want, you know, to, to get out what it was. And, and so I think one of the biggest fears that a lot of educators are having in terms of how this could play out is what is that going to mean for their academic freedom, especially not just at the K-12 level, but at, at the college and university level. Uh, you know, they, because I think a lot of the, the legislation that's being proposed uh, is speaking to any academic setting that has public edu- public funds that's publicly supported. You know, so that's your 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 K twelve schools, your college, your public colleges and universities, and even some grad school courses. One thing that also you know, is a concern is that okay, especially if you talk, start talking about college and graduate school and and trying to prepare students to be attorneys and professors and things, is that if you're not allowed to present ideas, you know, with, with the freedom to actually explore them, will you be effectively preparing your students to become, you know, professors and attorneys and things like that? You know, so how so how is that going to impact the quality of the degree that's being awarded at a higher institutions of higher learning if there's this law that's curbing the perspectives that can be presented in the classroom? And and I think it's that like that is like a, it's a snowball. Yeah. You knock down the door and it's just going to keep on rolling. And, and eventually more and more subjects are going to be attacked in this way. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing is, it's not just um, law. You know, it started out as a critical race theory. It did start out as a theory of law and how to understand how law is impacted by race and racism and, and how people are impacted by laws. Um, but it also, you know, it started branching out into the other areas like, like education, political science, health disparities, how you understand uh, criminal justice, how you understand uh, economic development, how, you know, so, so, you know, when you actually start understanding what, you know, this is, critical race theory is, it's a tool of analysis, you begin to see how without it, you know, a lot of proposed effective solutions for equity can be lost, you know, so what we have to do is we have to, like I said, we have to do a lot of work and we have to stay vigilant and make sure that we are not missing any uh, area of study and, and allowing for the, the free uh, flow of ideas and perspectives in, in, our, in our classrooms so that our students can be prepared to be the civically engaged uh, citizens that we want them to be in the 21st century. And, and I think that one thing that really uh, is going to impact this is when you have these closed institutions of, of learning, when we start talking about things like the history of, of education Mississippi being so segregated, start talking about segregation academies and the curricula that are being taught in those segregation academies and things, it kind of limits the opportunity for even those students to, to develop the empathy it takes to see a, a perspective from someone else's perspective or see, see a, a point of history from some other perspectives. So I want to pause here and talk about segregation academies. After the 1954 Supreme Court ruling on Brown versus Board of Education, when schools were forced to desegregate, private schools suddenly sprung up across the South. White families who didn't want their children in classrooms with black children came together to open their own schools for their own kind, leaving the public schools to the black children and also poor white families. The effects of the segregation academies continue to show up long after they began through courses, staffing, technology, and sometimes even sports. One thing that, that is evidence is this is, you know, the, the rash of photos that are coming out from some of our elected leaders who, while they were in college, they were in blackface, for example. At the time, there's no issue because, number one, they see very few, if any, black students in their classrooms whether it be high school or college or whatever. And so what that does is that kind of doesn't give you the opportunity to get to know them as a person, not the stereotype that's presented in the media or that's being told to you through the narrative of your narrowly construed uh, curriculum at that school. And so you don't see the humanity in other people. The empathy is not there. You know, so if you lack empathy for others or, or lack respect for, for difference and diversity, racial healing becomes a very challenging issue. And we wonder Mississippi is often looked at as, you know, a, a window into the past because our, our social progress and political progress hasn't kept up with a lot of the country, not all over the country, but a lot of the country. And I think in no, not so in large part, it's due to the fact that many of the, the political leaders, the business leaders, were, you know, educated in these segregated academies. They had very nearly prescribed cur curricula. They had very limited perspectives on things like the Civil War and, and the Reconstruction and Jim Crow era uh, living in Mississippi and things. And so by their very nature, they had no access to students and other races, other diversity. So what kind of ideas in their mind are going to be, you know, had about other other races and other 
cultures and other religions and things of that nature. And so, so if we're going to say that the world is flat now in terms of access to information, in terms of how people relate to one another and, and being in, in a 21st century workforce, you're going to have to have this sense of diversity and all those things. Those are impacted if you went to a high school and you're educated in a way that's closed in terms of perspective, in terms of access to diversity, in terms of intellectual development. You know, if, if you only see the world one way from one perspective, it's going to be very hard for you to adjust if you get out to the real world of work and democracy. You have to contend with other ideas and have to contend with other cultures and, and people with other perspectives and orientations. You know, how well are you going to function that way? And that's going to actually be detrimental to your prospects in terms of career, in terms of what you can do politically and socially in the community. So, so there, there's a lot to be had with this. You know, they, they can go in a variety of ways. And I think people don't really understand that it's not just about teaching about racism to a fifth grader. It's about, you know, are you being adequately prepared to take on the opportunities for career and civic engagement in the world of 21st century work in democracy? That is what this is essentially about for me. Chauncey was also a part of the work to create Senate Bill 2718. It was a law that allowed the Mississippi Department of Education to work with a new Civil Rights Education Commission to develop civil rights and human rights standards for every required social studies course in the state curriculum. It began to roll out around 2011, but Chauncey explains the controversy that came with that law and how it compares to what we're hearing about critical race theory. Honestly, uh, it, there's always been pushback whenever there's been progress. Uh, if you, right. can, you can even look back to right after the Civil War and the passage of the, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and the Reconstruction where we had elected officials uh, from Mississippi who were African-American for the first time in, in documented history, people who were actually organizing and galvanizing for, for, for African-American rights and economic development and things of that nature, but as far as back as 1868, 69, 70, 71, you had backlash then. And even like during the 1950s with Brown v. Board, you had in Mississippi, you had you know, very well-documented backlash in terms of uh, the freedom, school, freedom of choice schools and all these other things arising because they were trying to resist uh, integrating of schools. Uh, so when we passed the the, uh, the Civil Rights Education Bill, there was some resistance even then. I think the chair of, actually of the Senate Education Committee, he would submit a bill every year to repeal it. It never never left the committee. Mm. But uh, but we were, we were noting that every year somebody was submitting bills to repeal it. Uh, I can remember when we were trying to uh, do trainings, we would contract with different entities, teaching for change out of Washington, D.C., uh, and facing history ourselves out of New Orleans. And people were writing letters and calling up their radio talk shows and saying, no, we don't need these folks. These folks are socialists and these folks are, are militant and they're this and they're that, you know. And so there, there's always backlash, you know. So so even the backlash we're seeing today in terms of it's being framed as uh, being against critical race theory being taught in schools. Uh, but but it's not new. Uh, it, it, to me, it kind of signals that we are progressing. Uh, and so it, it, it kind of motivates me to actually continue to do more, you know, to make sure that we, we, we protect our gains and then uh, make room for future gains. And so by, and we do that by making sure people coming up, young people, students coming up, have the tools they need, the intellectual tools, academic tools, the, the, the soft skills. You know, the, the empathy, the, the, the respect for diversity, 
the ability to look at things in multiple perspectives and problem solve and be motivated and have a disposition to actually be civically engaged. All those things are coming from a robust understanding of history and a robust teaching of history in our classrooms. Uh, and so when we see uh, people who are rising up and saying, you know, we don't want these things taught in our classrooms, you know, I, I would love to just dialogue with them, you know, just sit down and say, okay, so what are your fears? You know, what, what are the things that you're, you're looking at that, that you may think learning an accurate and full history of your community, you know, of your state, of, the, of your country, uh, would actually do to harm your loved ones, your children, your kids that are in these schools, you know, and let's see if you have an accurate understanding of what actually is being taught. So how do we show up for each other? That's the question that we'll try to answer each episode. States like Texas and Oklahoma have already passed their own versions of bills that seek to limit teacher speech by denouncing what some call divisive teachings. And it'd be no surprise if during the 2022 legislative session, Mississippi sees a copycat bill. In fact, a conservative think tank recently released a report and a prospective bill seeking to erase the complex and painful history of racism and oppression from Mississippi classrooms. But we cannot simply close our eyes and censor all conversation in the classroom that acknowledges and tries to learn from our full history and claim that issues of systemic racial injustice have never existed because we know they have. Any legislation that attempts to do this will stop us from addressing the legacy of our past and moving forward together. So ACLU of Mississippi and our partner organizations will be closely following any legislation that aims to do this. And when it's time to take action, we will need your help. So if you haven't already, head over to our website, aclums.org, and sign up for our email updates because your voice is powerful and we the people will be heard. Thanks again to Chauncey for joining me on For All, the podcast. Remember, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ACLU underscore MS and on Facebook at ACLU of Mississippi. And we just launched our TikTok page. So go ahead and follow us on there as well. If you are a TikToker, it is ACLU underscore MS as well. We already have our first video up. So please, please, please go and share it. All right. Now go advocate for something.